0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I will read blog posts about life hacks or all the, and I'm just like, okay, I like, I can't, I just like, (laughs) I do not have a morning routine. I am not meditating before I get up. Like, you know, my baby woke up at 4am. I fed her. She went back to sleep. My middle kid joined me in bed at 545. My older kid joined me in bed at six. We got out of bed. And then like, it's a scramble. I didn't, you know, I couldn't get ready until 830 once they got out the door. And then I raced to come and talk with you. You know, like there, they're, we just have a different deal. Um, But what I'll tell you is from the hours of nine to five, when I'm sitting here at my desk, I am so good. Like I can get so much done. And so there are other things that, you know, that we're able to accomplish that. And then, and then after they go to bed tonight, like I'll hop on and I'll do my like nighttime research and reading and preparation for the next day. And this is a life that I am deeply grateful for.
0: I'm Srini
2: Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of
0: the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive
2: at UnmistakableCreative.com. Bria, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me, Srini. I'm so happy to be here with you today.
2: It is my pleasure to have you here. You are one of a long line of amazing people that uh, has been referred to our show by our mutual friend, Sarah Peck. Uh, Every single person who she refers is amazing. And every time I say that to somebody, I'm like, no pressure. But now you have to knock it out of the park. (laughs) Um,
1: Sarah is so good. And she knows so many wonderful people. So I'm grateful for her connection.
2: Absolutely. Well, so uh, you, um, you know, have this very sort of interesting uh, world that you live in, where you're kind of at the intersection of, you know, motherhood, entrepreneurship, and the world that we live in today. And I thought you, know, what a fitting question would be to start is, what is one of the most important things that you learned from your own mother, that uh, has influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life?
1: Well, big opener. Okay. I actually have a memory to share with you, Srini. So when I was young, uh, my, my parents divorced when I was four. And so I spent uh, 50% of the time with my mom and 50% of the time with my dad. I, I went back and forth every week on Sundays Um, On the weeks I was with my mom, she was a single mom working and she didn't have a college degree and was working her way up um, through uh, marketing in an architecture field, construction, uh, very male dominated field. And I remember um, one night uh, very vividly, I was probably about seven or eight. And uh, she had to work late because she had this big deadline and I was, it was one of my weeks with her and she took me to the office that night, which I thought was so cool because she had like the best, uh, you know, highlighters and, and stuff to play with. And I slept under her desk, that night um, while she worked late into the night. And this memory sticks out to me so much because I recognized then, even at that young age, what she was doing, which was, you know, she was integrating work and life and deadlines and fighting against a system that really wasn't built for her and bringing me along to get a front seat to that. And boy, that has really influenced the way that I mother and I lead as an entrepreneur, that, that one night sleeping under her desk. Uh, that, that time when I was a little kid.
2: Yeah. So just to get across, did your parents encourage any particular career paths or, you know, suggest that, you know, there are certain things that you should do with your life or did they kind of leave it open-ended for you?
1: No, you know, my parents were not, I don't come from a long line of scholars. Like there, you find families where they've got kids that have all gone to particular schools and um, I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. So the expectations, I don't want to say they were low, but the the, my, the family I came from were, it was a pretty scrappy group um, and they wanted me to sort of be a good human. And um, in fact, I remember negotiating with them pretty early in life um, to sort of like not get good grades. Um, <laughs> like, you know, other parents would encourage their kids to do well. And, you know, and I had these other interests. I was involved in student government. I was student body president in my high school and my college. And I just said like, hey, you know, I'm going to forego this like whole 4.0 thing in favor of this other stuff. And we kind of pre-negotiated this stuff. Uh, So no, they were were kind of open to whatever path I wanted to pursue. And generally, you know, I, I was a pretty good kid. I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble. So it worked out okay.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, student government, uh, you know, being student you know, body president and foregoing that and, uh, you know, for <clears throat> like foregoing the 4.0 for that, I think is one of those things that uh, doesn't seem like it has an immediate payoff in the short run. But the long term potential of that is so much more significant later in life, uh, just based on my own experience of being raised by parents who pretty much instilled rigid discipline and insisted on straight A's. Uh, and so I wonder what did you learn from those sort of social experiences about you know uh, human relationships, uh, you know power dynamics, and and making your way in the world?
1: Oh, it, I mean, so I I went to a, a state school in Washington, uh, Washington State University, and it's a it's a pretty uh, white community. It's a there's a it's a very rural community. Um, so it was really different from how I grew up in urban Seattle, um, and. Running for student body president there was, you know, something I knew that I wanted to do the second I stepped on that campus, um, and I was the eighth female to hold the role of student body president in our hundred-year history, and we haven't had one since. So it's, uh, it was a really unique experience to try to figure out my path to, uh, to even to win. Um, I knew I couldn't, for instance, have another female on the ticket with me. Um, I picked the local radio DJ to be my vice president. Like there was like all these things and, and, um, structures I tried to fight against to, um, to try to win. And, but it was like sort of for this greater good. Like I knew that if I could get into that seat, that I could change the way that we perceived advocacy that we would have a different voice representing students like it was just it was kind of all worth it in the end and again that has like really translated even later in life like i don't remember what classes i took necessarily in college but i definitely remember holding those kinds of positions of power and what the pressures of that look like
3: jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it
0: Okay. So
2: that raises a question for me about, you know, uh, the structure of, you know, how politicians operate, uh, in their campaigns in general, right? Because, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, part of your motivation to do this was for the greater good. And when I see politicians often, I think they're almost entirely driven by self-interest, uh, when we get into sort of, you know, local government, state government, and even, you know, government on the, on the national level, uh, you know, they make a lot of promises, but at the end of the day, it seems like, you know, self-interest drives so many of their decisions versus okay. really thinking about the greater good and recognizing the fact that we live in an interdependent society.
1: Mm, you're a pessimist.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I'm a pessimist, but I'm <laughs> I, I'm somebody who has lost faith in, you know, politicians to act in the interest of citizens based on what I've seen over the last two years. mm. mm. And yeah, you've I mean, been in a position oh, where enough. you <laughs> kind of you know you know played a role. Like I don't understand how yeah. politics work. I've never been in a position of power like that. So I figure, even yeah. a student, as a somebody who is the student body president of a university, you have a, a sort of tacit understanding of the way these things work and the way these systems are structured that I never do, never will.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a foundational belief. Uh, I, I generally believe in positive intent for these folks. Now, I'm with you. I mean. There, there is a lot of demonstration of folks acting um, with uh, with ill intent and, that, and that's a disappointment every time you see it. But anytime you're in a leadership position, whether elected, appointed, or, you know, deserved, like if you have been uh, a business leader as well, you know, there is some element of servant leadership and also purpose and ethics that come into play. We constantly are, uh, you know, there's a lot of decisions that we make in private, Myself included, I you know I have a team of almost a hundred folks now, and I have to make a lot of decisions on behalf of the group that they will never know about. Yeah. Um, and and it is just constantly a, a question of who are you serving? you know and that and that's the question that I think as i've as I've grown even from you know holding that position in college up until now, you know 20 plus years later, that's a question that has I have come back to time and time again throughout my life as I've made, lots of career moves and decisions for my own family, I constantly go back to this question of who am I serving?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of your own career, like what has been the trajectory post-college that has led you to where you're at today and the work that you're
1: doing? Mm. You know, I think I, I, there are folks that I have watched that are really mindful about their career and their intended next steps. And I don't know, I wish that I could say that that was my Path that I was this is a highly curated experience, but it really wasn't. Um, you know, I made a, a, a number of choices. However, the the beautiful thing in this current season that I'm in is that I'm running a business that actually takes and pulls from every single one of those experiences I had before, and it's like this capstone project that I didn't anticipate. So I'll answer your question a little bit more directly. After college, I went into enterprise tech. Um, my first job was at Microsoft. I spent you know about five years in corporate. And then I totally left my corporate career uh, against my mother and father's wishes um, to go and, and run a very small business. I was employee number one um, at a staffing business. And I scaled them up to about 120 folks. And then I went and I uh, pursued some uh, experiences in digital agencies, ran one of those. I went and joined a startup, and it was when I was at the startup, uh, my first time doing a B2C startup. And so, I, you know, I kind of had had this like collection of what seemed like random experiences, but kind of was a little bit of a tour of duty around b- the business world and checking out different business models. When I was at that mm. startup, um, I got knocked up. I was super excited. We decided to start our, my family with my husband. And um, it was while I was at that startup that... Um, that the company decided to go a different direction and they reduced our staff of uh, about 500 folks by 20%. So I was laid off seven months pregnant. Mm. And it was that moment, Srini, that I was like, okay, shit. So uh, not only do I not have a plan, but I don't have any options. Um, And I faced a a lot of pregnancy discrimination. I tried to get a job desperately. I was the breadwinner for my family. I held our medical benefits um for my upcoming birth like all of that was in jeopardy and so um no one would hire me i mean i was i was essentially left out of the workforce and so i was very fortunate and lucky to be able to become a consultant so i just said okay well will you at least hire me on freelance and i got a couple of yeses and so i scrambled to put together and save enough money for a self-funded maternity leave after that, and once that happened, like I had this baby, I had this like fledgling consulting business out of like out of, out of duress, and then I had to kind of scrape that together to build something like a career, a plan, or get a job. Like so, that was kind of the moment that I found myself in after my first son.
2: Mm. So, how common is is pregnancy discrimination in the workplace, and what are the long term implications of that for businesses? Because yeah, as somebody who runs on you know unmistakable as a freelance business, uh, if somebody came to me and they're damn good at what they do, I would say I don't care if you're pregnant, just do the job.
1: Mm. Well, you're you're definitely different than most, <laughs> and that's the the reality is that women face incredible amounts of discrimination, especially those with children. Um, they are deemed less trustworthy. They are not, of course, promoted at the same rate, and and so much so that if a woman decides to opt out of the workforce to take care of kids, and we can talk about the, the amazing number of women who are opting out of the workforce right now, 70% of them who leave a job, ju- even if it's just for a few years, they will never get a full-time job back in their chosen profession again. I mean, this is this is a serious off-ramp. Um, so not only are they not seen in the same capacity in the jobs that they do, but once they step out, it is so, so hard to get back in.
0: Wow.
2: Well, I mean, I I think, you know, you and I were talking last time, you know, when we connected the first time about that, that brilliant quote that Sally Fields uh, has at Brothers and Sisters, where she basically goes off on, you know, this investor who, you know, basically says that, you know, running this complex enterprise, you know, as you would call it, is basically going to be a day at the beach for me, considering, you know, she raised five kids, (laughs) uh, you know, you know, carpools and bake sales and all that other stuff. And I think that that's so shocking to me because I feel like raising kids um, would probably give you invaluable experience that would actually make you more trustworthy, and more capable and more, you know, capable of coordinating chaos in a business than any other experience.
1: Well, the research agrees with you, Srini. I mean, that's what's so amazing. I have been gobbling up this book called Tending by Amy Henderson. She's a thought leader in how we can unlock the future of work thanks to parents, essentially like the superpowers that you get once you become a parent. Um, And she's uncovered a bunch of research um, that actually shows that your brain changes when you have a kid. Um, I'm going to summarize it as well as I can, but essentially, you know, your brain goes through tremendous development, ages zero through five in your life. And kind of after that, you get pretty well set. The only other time in your life that you will experience that kind of dramatic change to your brain is in the one year following the birth of your child for mothers and engaged fathers. So it actually changes the way that you think, work, the lens on the world. Um, and, And Amy's teaching is that we can absolutely unlock creativity at work. Uh, aligned with parenthood, and and for me that certainly has been a true experience. I had my babies and I started my business all all mixed up and jumbled up together. So I, I personally experienced that same um, that same thing.
2: Yeah. So there the, are the two questions that come from this. Um, one, you know, how did your own perspective and worldview change specifically as the the byproduct of of having children? And then, you know, from a um, policy level, what is it that can be done? To, to combat this whole idea of pregnancy discrimination.
1: Hmm. I'll address your first question. So I'll tell you another story. Okay. So I had my first son, I was scrambling, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, but professionally. And what I didn't know about kids is that they don't know how to eat or sleep. I thought that they just. Came. I didn't know that they didn't know that. So I was I was trying to figure out how to sleep train my son sleep train. This is like a job. This is something you have to do. You have to teach the kids how to sleep. So I started this little Facebook group of a bunch of my mom friends just and I was like, hey, I need to get my kid to sleep. Like, what are the techniques and what happened next? Absolutely blew me away all these women in this Facebook group started adding their other friends and introducing themselves. And this group grew organically. I mean, in a matter of months, we had 500 folks in this group. And all of a sudden, these women were suggesting all these techniques and binkies and classes. And I was like, what is happening here? Uh, You know, it was this club I didn't know that I needed and that I immediately got invited into. And what happened, Srini, is that I, I looked at this group and I said, why can't we have that at work? Why can't we have this like truly intrinsically motivated collection of people so enthusiastic about helping each other without fear? Like, why can't we ex- we have that experiment in the workplace? And that actually that little group of Facebook mamas totally changed that question that I told you earlier about, which is, who do you want to serve? I wanted to give money to this group. Like I wanted this, this group of women and mothers to live lives that allowed them to be both mothers and compensated well, and have this impact in the world um, and not have to compromise. And so that completely shifted what I wanted to do and the business that I wanted to build. Because I, before that I had been making a bunch of white dudes really rich (laughs) And, (laughs) and I just didn't want to do that anymore.
2: Yeah. Wow. What about the policy piece?
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is a systemic problem. This is, uh, you know, any sort of marginalized group, there are many issues that need to be discussed when we're thinking about this. Now, the interesting thing, you and I are talking um, during a very unique time because of the work that's happening on the federal level um, around this massive funding proposal for the very first time in history, there is a very real possibility that we're going to pass a national paid leave program. Uh, I'm sure you know you've probably heard and know that America is one of the very few industrialized countries that doesn't have paid leave um, for our caretakers. And this isn't just mothers. This isn't just maternity leave. This is for fathers. This is for any partner who adopts a baby. This is also for the sandwich generation, like I'm entering into, where we need to take care of our parents, our peers. And ourselves. So it's a very um, ubiquitous policy that enables 12 weeks of paid t- paid time off. I also I sit in Washington state and um, we are one of four states that actually has a, a state paid leave program. Um, so I was the benefactor of this for my last child i got one thousand dollars per week for 12 weeks while she was off with her which was remarkable because my first two kids i told you i mean i was scraping together every penny i had to make sure i could pay my mortgage and this last time um you know i i had a very different experience i was i was super confident going into that leave knowing that i would have that that fund and that investment to come back to and so now we have a chance to pass that on the federal level so that's one piece of this paid leave is a really big piece of this Um, So that's that's private sector um, uh, funding. In addition to that, of course, we have uh, we I'm I'm sorry, public sector. We have private sector work that needs to happen as well. And this is a step that we're really passionate about my business because we come into workplaces and we help with basically culture coaching to make these environments more hospitable. Um, to women, to caretakers and to other underrepresented groups um, so that they can stay in as much as we possibly can. We want folks to stay in and we want them to either stay in in a full time capacity because you can you know right now that a, that attrition and resignations are through the roof, but also to consider bringing them in, in a freelance capacity like the situation I, I shared with you, um, because that also lets us keep folks in. So we are specialists in trying to help bridge those relationships so that we can keep the right folks in the room.
2: Yeah. No. What do you think that men in the workplace misunderstand about this dynamic and this narrative? And is that misunderstanding, uh, you know, true for men who happen to already be fathers as well, but whose wives are, you know, long past, you know, giving birth or long past pregnancy?
1: I mean, look, I, I, I think we all have blind spots. Um, I, I don't want to generalize that, you know, all men, uh, you know, discriminate towards pregnant women by any means. I, I have met a lot of really active allies in this fight. Uh, but we all have a responsibility to take up a charge that looks like building hospitable workplaces where we all can thrive. Um, pregnancy is one of the moments where we see a massive amount of discrimination in a very short period of time. But that's not the only place we see discrimination. Of course, people of color, n- non-neurotypical. Lot, there's, there are many situations where we're not accommodating to our peers and our colleagues. And should we should we offer that kind of accommodation or that kind of empathy, the kind of unlock we would have in our workplaces um, really is outstanding. I mean, trillions of dollars would be added to the GDP if we enabled this kind of work.
2: Yeah. You know, so, it's, you know, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because, um, you know, we recently launched something, uh, a new course called the 100 Day Project. And when we did the survey of our audience, the, there's one answer in particular that stood out to me uh, about somebody who wanted to start a project. And it was from some woman who said, I want to start a blog for, you know, ambitious mothers who want to thrive both at home and in the workplace. Uh, and that, you know, I thought that was just kind of serendipitous that you and I happened to be talking about this. And then, you know, the other issue that, seems to come up over and over again uh, is the issue of time. You know, you mentioned juggling, you know, running a business while raising three kids under six. And I think the thing that really kind of shined a light for me on my own biases was when, you know, one of our, our uh, former guests, Michelle Florendo, showed up, you know, to our mastermind calls with a baby in tow. And I realized, uh, you know, that when I was giving a lot of my advice, I hadn't considered the context of her life.
1: Yeah, well, I know, Michelle, she's actually brilliant. Um, and we have been on many calls with babies and pumps and all sorts of stuff <laughs> going on in the background. It's funny because for us, you know, we don't think about it, right? Like, uh, I do remember I conducted a job interview very early on at Lions and Tigers and um, and I was pumping and I was like, hey, by the way, I got a pump right now. And what I didn't know is that it actually made that candidate want to work with us more, You know, he was like this. I've never been in a workplace where where it's just so open who people are and what they need. And so what I didn't know, uh, this was I should have come to this conclusion first, but I didn't know that sort of like that level of authenticity and that level of vulnerability around the shit that we've all got going on in our lives, including these kids and parenting and all this messy stuff like needs to come out like it was just it was just right there and it needed to come out. And here we are. There is no choice um and what it has done for humanity is it, there there of course is a lot of risk um and there are of course people who um don't have that uh, psychological or organizational safety um but in our organization that has been a superpower. That has been a thing that has, has bonded us all. Um, and, and to your point, like not everyone that works for us are parents. And so there is this great empathy, um, exchange that happens when we get to show up like that. You know, one of the, the folks that work at, at my company, she lives in a Airstream, she travels and and she works, she's a digital nomad. And so, you know, I could never empathize with that experience prior to this. You know, she has, uh, 50 square feet that she lives in every day, but she makes the best damn uh, uh, espresso that you've ever ever seen. And so um, there is like this great human connection that is afforded to us today that's really unique.
2: I mean, how then do you manage, you know, time-wise to actually do all of this? Because the thing that, you know, like when I – in my conversations with Michelle, what became apparent to me was that I was, you know, giving advice about productivity and time management that often is given by, you know, like single men, white men like Tim Ferriss. And I realized if Michelle (laughs) dropped her kids off at Tim Ferriss' house for a week and said, you know what, babysit my kids. Let's do that as the Tim Ferriss experiment, all his productivity strategies would go to (laughs) shit pretty quickly. Quickly. (laughs) Personally, I want somebody to do that. I think it would be fascinating to watch. Um, But the thing is that, you know, like I said, that made me so aware of the fact that I had completely ignored the context of other people's lives when I was giving certain pieces of advice. And I finally came to the conclusion. So when I would, you know, sit in these masterminds, I would tell people, I'm like, I want you to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit, because it (laughs) might be for you.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, we all stumble across our own privilege all the time um, that that's just a part of this human experiment is that there are elements of advantage that we each have that we need to either compensate for or take moments of pause. And so, you know, nice work kind of coming to the conclusion that uh, that that you sit in a different place than Michelle. I mean, yes, I I will read blog posts about life hacks. All the, all, and I'm just like, okay, I like, I can't. I just like, I do not have a morning routine. I am not meditating before I get up. Like, you know, my baby woke up at 4 a.m. I fed her. She went back to sleep. My middle kid joined me in bed at 5:45. My older kid joined me in bed at six we got out of bed and then like, it's a scramble. I didn't, you know, I couldn't get ready until 8.30 once they got out the door. And then I raced to come and talk with you, you know, like there, there, we just have a different deal. Um, but what I'll tell you is from the hours of nine to five, when I'm sitting here at my desk, I am so good. Like I can get so much done. And so there are other things that, you know, that we're able to accomplish that. And then, and then after they go to bed tonight, like I'll hop on and I'll do my like nighttime research and reading and preparation for the next day. And this is a life that I am deeply grateful for. So I guess I don't see it as a disadvantage or a burden. It's just a different deal and a specific season. Um, But I'm with you in terms of like the blind spots and privilege that we have that we don't always see until we are confronted with it.
2: Yeah. So I guess the, the follow-up to that is, you know, with, for the, the mothers in our audience who, you know, legitimately bring up the issues of time management, which are nothing like mine. Cause like I you know, I would say, Oh, one focused hour a day. And I realized how ridiculous that is for yeah. somebody like you, uh, you know, and somebody who's dealing with screaming toddlers and angst ridden teenagers. I'm, you know, a single guy and I, it just became so apparent to me. So for mothers in the audience, like what is it that enables this? Because, you know, I, you know, like you said, they have invaluable skills that should be brought into the workforce. And yet they're having to compromise.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we have studied at Lions and Tigers is this concept of highest and best use. And it's actually a real estate term that we've borrowed because it, it looks at a plot of land and it thinks about the kind of investment that you can get, the return on investment, given the particular boundaries and resources available to that to that land. And we think about that as it relates to humans. And how that shows up for us is that we try our in most situations to not measure hours. Um, so we have an, uh so we kind of apply this by thinking about impact over hours. And um, and to sort of answer your question about how mothers are able to balance, I mean, this is just you know part of our skill set. And what what I have found though is that. Uh, what we what we don't do is we don't say, OK, well, I need to see you online and in your seat at nine o'clock. Like I need your little you know dot to show up green. Um, we don't we don't even look at that. We don't we don't consider when or where a human is working. When we think about highest and best use and impact over hours, what we're looking at is what are the objectives and key results that that we are signed up to accomplish? And are we able to accomplish those things? The how it gets done is completely individualized. Um, and, and we empower our team and our staff to work in the way that is best for them. Um, and that has been uh, that's been our coping strategy in the last two years um, during COVID and homeschool. And like that. So we've just have had a ton of grace as it relates to time, um, because it's really different for every person. Earlier this week, my middle kid got sick. Now in times of COVID, I have to pull all three kids out of school and go do COVID testing before they can even go back in. So I had to cancel everything on Monday. I worked late Monday night. I hopped online half day on Tuesday. I mean, this is just the reality of like how parents are living, especially right now with back to school and this like hybrid thing. So it's staccato. It is like, there's no flow. I'm not like getting into a place where I'm doing like Pomodoro timers. No, I'm doing like 15 minute like survival chunks we're looking mm-hmm. at the most, most urgent things like that. Sometimes that's just what that's like where we're at right now. Yeah. Well,
2: so, you know, I love this idea of an impact over hours workplace. And the, it's the funny thing. That's one of the reasons I don't think I did well in corporate was because I felt like I was always in situations where they measure FaceTime. And I remember the very last job interview I ever had for a real job. This was right before my book, uh, came out. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of like, the moment when I said, you know what, I'm never going to go back. Like, this is my moment when I've decided that it's just not going to happen. And I I went into this job interview and I wrote about this in my book. And uh, I remember talking to this executive team and the guy looks at me and says, yeah, he said, when I asked about the culture, he said, when we say eight o'clock, we mean 8am, 8 not 815. And I was like, yeah, this is a place that's entirely driven by rules and social norms that are completely outdated. Um, but you know, and again, I haven't been in the corporate world for so long that I don't know if that's the case anymore. But I, I feel like an impact hour per hour's workplace should be more prevalent across you know industries. And it doesn't seem like it is yet. How do we get to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're touching on the great resignation. I mean, this this is the time that we're in. You you probably felt this earlier than many Americans or maybe maybe how you were uh, raised gave you more confidence to go into a uh, a setting like this. Um, But now many Americans are catching up. Um, I mean, we're hearing, of course, of the number of people. I mean, you look at a bunch of different studies and it's roughly half of Americans are currently evaluating whether they're going to stay in their roles or not. Um, And then, of course, you know, we've seen a tremendous amount of folks opt out of the workforce, either opt out or be pushed out. Right. I mean, in April, May and June of this year alone, 11.5 million workers quit their jobs. Wow. A lot a lot. And of course the majority of those are women and the majority of those women are women of color. So you can imagine the kind of workplace disruption that happens when everyone quits their jobs. Attrition is is the number one fear for leaders right now. And you know that these there are really clear reasons why this is happening. I mean number 1 on the list is burnout. <laughs> it's just it's not it the way we have been working is not sustainable. And and to to your point earlier, you know, I represent a pretty big percentage of the population, most Americans are parents. Um, and many of us had to step out and take care of children for the last two years. My kids are a little bit younger. Um, so I, I had a little bit of a different scenario, but many of our colleagues um, have been fighting against this system that wasn't built by us or for us. You know, this like eight hour, eight hour, eight hour workday just isn't real anymore. You know, our, our lives have changed so dramatically um, and we haven't centered Uh, the kinds of people that we really want to make sure stay in the workforce. And so what we're seeing is that they're opting out.
2: Yeah. Well, Then how do you redesign a workforce to accommodate for this, uh, not just on the individual level like at your company, but to do it at scale across society?
1: It's Interesting, because if you talk to any leader who runs a business and you ask them, what's the thing that makes your business different? They all will say, my people right like that is the answer and what's remarkable is that they haven't centered their people i mean m- many business leaders many others in my field will center profit or outcome or clients as the thing that they need right because we need money like this is how this whole thing works we're profit driven capitalistic society but what we have found at lnt in this sort of counterculture that we've built is that if we ask our humans what they need and we build that into our system our results are better collectively So the things that we see work, that research demonstrates, of course, is that we offer flexibility. We make sure that people can work how and when they want. If they want to work part-time, that's great. If they want to go back up to full-time, that's great. Like, there is no fear of that kind of shifting and changing over time. We look at leaders um, who reward inclusive cultures. So, and this is hard. Um, You know, measuring belonging is very difficult. And that's really where I think uh, leaders are, are trying to go next, um, is thinking about how we can uh, ensure that our workplaces are not only inclusive, but that f- people feel like they can belong. And and with that, you know, what the other thing that people need, sort of the third item is that, and, and this relates directly to burnout, is that they need organizational clarity to know what they're fighting for collectively. Because if you don't understand the purpose and how you fit in, you work all of the time and you burn out. So it is this really bad cycle of poor leadership, which uh, does not sort of clarify the outcomes and mission and everyone's piece in that puzzle that leads to these cultures that don't see the humans that are doing the work.
2: Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about diversity. Um, you know, you mentioned you know women of color multiple times, and I think that the thing is, as you know, a non-white male. But when I hear people talk about diversity, yeah, at times I feel like it's just a buzzword. Like there are two experiences in particular that stand out to me. Um, I gave a TEDx talk uh, at TEDx Portland. And I remember, you know, when I sent the video to my speakers bureau, they said, there's only one thing wrong with this talk. I said, what they said, you know, the kids in the slides are all white. I was like, well, doesn't it matter that an Indian guy is giving the talk? (laughs) Like (laughs) and then the same with the show. I remember having somebody email me complaining about the lack of diversity of guests, And I'm like, you realize you're a white woman emailing an Indian guy about the lack of diversity on a show hosted Mm. by an Indian guy. (laughs) Um, So those are two experiences that really stood out to me because I think that it's really weird. Like again, you know, I'm in the fortunate position that the stereotype of most Indians is that they're model minorities, right? Where the doctors, lawyers, and engineers, uh, you know, of this country. And so we're really lucky there, but um, you know, how do you stop diversity from, you know, just being a buzzword? And, you know, what are the real impacts of diversity in the workplace?
1: Mm. That's a huge question, Srini. And one that I think we, we're all growing in our understanding of, um, and, and just to be clear with the audience, I'm a white woman with a lot of privilege. Um, and so I think, you know, really for many leaders, uh, they weren't listening and, they, and there was like this cry for many years. I mean, people of color, especially our black community, have been asking leaders to pay better attention. And it wasn't until George Floyd that everyone had to stop. And so DEI became um, a huge priority and um, and DEI consultants became a huge priority uh, for my business. I can speak in in terms of what I've experienced and how we've approached it. My company also is run by a majority white leadership team. And so when George Floyd happened and my community came together to talk about this experience and collectively what, as leaders, we are going to do so that we can ensure our clients are well supported as well, we recognized that we didn't have all of the tools and perspectives that we needed to navigate this change that we needed to go through. Um, So we did an extensive search and we brought in a DEI consultant um, to help. Help us kind of go through this transformation, and what we learned um, during that process is that you know many leaders will hire and put in place a DEI leader on their team. Maybe it's someone that's embedded in HR. Um, it's a it's a person that they that they think of as someone that's going to solve the DEI problem or their inclusion problem. And what we experienced during our process is that you know when. When we think about transformation and workplaces of inclusion, it is not a checkbox exercise. It is not a person who will solve the equity problems in our businesses. We had to go and we did a super thorough investigation that looked at every element of our business from our website all the way through our exit interview process. We looked at every single step of the engagement journey, our pay scales, our promotion um, our promotion um, stats, like our, of course, our, their demographic information we look at, but also like what does representation look like at each level of our organization? And we put in place a five-year plan to, to eradicate some of the um, unintended biases that were in our own system. And we, and we actually are a pretty progressive company. And even we had a very long to-do list um, that we needed to, to accomplish. And so I can empathize with leaders who are juggling, trying to, keep payroll in motion, keep people happy, worry about this great resignation thing, but also think about equity. Um, but what I would encourage, and the thing that has been really um, transformative to me is that, you know, this this isn't just a one-time training. You know, this isn't just a, a checkbox exercise. It is a it's a, a very long process that takes a ton of commitment and that you get better each and every day. It's not something that you can just like solve. Uh, Because you really have to listen. And our workplaces are highly dynamic. People come and go and change and uh, the ecosystem shifts. Um, And so, you know, to your question about, like, what does diversity do for our organizations? You know, what it has done for my organization as we have started to broaden our lens. Because I remember I told you that the thing that really got me started in this business was advocating for mothers in the workplace. My lens particularly has broadened. My aperture has, has broadened. To now not just consider mothers who are, yes, a highly discriminated against group, but to also represent the others in my community um, who have different identities, who are, you know, who identify as non-binary or um, non-neurotypical or need accessibility accommodations. There are lots of ways that we can bring human empathy to the workplace to make sure that everyone gets to thrive.
2: Yeah. Let's touch briefly on, you know, people in the workplace who are non neurotypical because I think that that, you know, basically, defi- you know, describes me in a nutshell. And I think, you know, when you get fired from every job you've ever had, you start to wonder, you know, if something is wrong with you. And I got written off as lazy and unmotivated and not interested in controlling my own destiny. Those are the exact words mm. that wow. used. you don't do what I do if those three things are true.
1: Wow, and yeah part of
2: part of that was simply because i'm an a d d person who like to me being chained to a desk for eight hours a day is absolute torture. I can't do it um and it just you know it it refla- it basically what it did is it completely derailed you know people's perception of my abilities and you know my motivation and i don't I don't think I'm alone in that uh so you know one how do you address issues for those people? And then two, one of the things that I think uh, that I've become more and more aware of is my own cognitive biases uh, that influence everything I say, everything I do, and all the advice that I give. How do you stay aware of your own cognitive biases, particularly when all these biases are unconscious for most of us?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, Serena, if I could ask you a question back. Do you, did yeah. you feel or do you feel like you could have articulated what? work environment would have worked for you you know it's
2: funny you say that because um yes and no so i always jokingly say if i went back to corporate now one of two things would happen i would absolutely crush it because i'm coming in with you know like a you know encyclopedia of knowledge from thousands of people who are far smarter than I am, thanks to the work I've done on on their show. Uh, Or I would get fired in the first day because I would be done with all my work and it would look like I was doing nothing because, you know, the natural byproduct of the way I've learned to work is I look for efficiency in everything.
1: Interesting. So I I guess what I would say there. So one of the things that we do in our work um, at Lions and Tigers is that as each candidate comes in. We try to really deeply understand them and how and when they'd like to work. We talked about used a little bit ago. Um, mm-hmm. So what is unique about our model is that as someone comes in, it, it's like a very customized approach. And then what we do is we try to go and find them projects that fit that particular body of uh, like their needs and, and their superpowers. No. Like if you are absolutely best working at midnight, because that's when you light up, then we want to find projects that um, are flexible in nature that don't that can can be done um, asynchronously, and we set up the tools that allow you to do that. So that's why I would, I would say like, but, but that's because I deeply believe in people's ability if they're put into a space where they are able to thrive and not conform yeah. to the way that I want to work. Uh, so, I mean, if every leader would just think like that, like problem solved.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I remember my old mentor, Greg, said, you know, if you mismatch talent with environment, you're going to get shitty performance. And yeah, this is something that I realized as the person who had been put on performance improvement plans, I realized there was one fundamental flaw in that entire, you know, uh, process. I was like performance improvement plans don't improve performance. They prevent long, wrongful termination lawsuits.
1: Oh, and so true.
2: I realized, I said, the thing that nobody ever asks when they put somebody on a performance improvement plan is, is this person actually doing the right job in the first place? Maybe that's why their performance sucks.
1: Yes, such a good point. And here's the other factor here that, you know, that leaders really should be paying attention to, Gen Z. I mean, no. they're, they're going to demand a very different kind of work. You know, okay, so I'm doing um, a, a little project with my alma mater. I'm, I'm letting them take on a new product um, that I'm thinking about for lions and tigers. And it's the entrepreneurship class at, at my college. And so I'm letting them like take a chunk of this in my very first meeting with these six 20 year olds. One of the gals says, um, I have ADHD and I, you know, and I want to know how you can accommodate me. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. All right, here we are. We're, we're doing this for like right off the bat. Right. Like it's just a, it's a whole different, um, hubris, that mm-hmm. I am, I'm so like empowered. by I'm like, yes, go do it. Let's let's get you in front of the room.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. What about the bias thing? I mean, how do we, Mm. you know, cultivate an awareness of our own biases? Um, Because like I said, I mean, I, you know, it's taken me a long time to realize even, you know, when I questioned my own parents advice and thought that they were out of their minds for suggesting the things that they did, I took me back to context. I'm like, you grew up in India when, you know, your life outcomes were binary. It was either poverty or security, nothing in between. You didn't have what I do. Um, So their advice made sense in the context of the life that they, you know, in, in the way that they were raised. And it took me yeah. a long time to to come to terms with that.
1: I mean, the thing that I appreciate about you and your community is that the entire intent of this group is about creativity and cultivating learning for a lifetime. And I think that I approach this in the same way. Um, I have a ton of privilege, a ton of bias, and I have spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And I will spend the rest of my life trying to understand how to pay that back, how to expose myself to experiences that are not my own. Um, and and that's just a curiosity that I have. Like, I'm just deeply interested in humans like you. Like, I just want to know how people tick and what their lived experiences have been. And, um, and And so for me, like, I just I am very curious about that. And I spend a lot of time reading, listening to podcasts diverse voices. Like, I just want to n- understand more about that. Cause I, I just think if you don't spend that time, um, you will never be able to achieve the kind of empathy, um, that we need to achieve as leaders. And I, and I, in my job, I can't advocate for folks that I don't listen to. It's just that that is my job. I have to do mm-hmm. it. And and I'm yeah. very privileged to get to have this job.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, well, I feel like this is a really deep rabbit hole that could, you know, we could explore for hours on end.
1: <laughs> for sure. And people do. And that yeah. would be another uh, great discussion to have. And and perhaps with other, you know, other leaders who have also had these kinds of experiences.
2: Yeah, Well, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. I have learned so much talking to you. Um, I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh boy, I've heard so many of the answers on uh, this podcast before and I I don't want to repeat other themes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, let me think about something unique. Uh, No, I I have to agree with your past guests who have talked about authenticity. Like I just, I'm craving it. I want more of it. I want like dirty sailing sailors. Like I just, I want this like really like humans of New York style way of life. Like I just, I'm so grateful that that's the space that we're moving into and I will never go back.
2: Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us, to share your story, your wisdom, and your insights for the listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and everything else you're up to?
1: Yeah, my company is called Lions and Tigers. We're a courage brand. You can find us at lions-tigers.com, lions tigers co on Instagram. And I, my favorite platform is LinkedIn. So you can find me there. I'm Bria Starmer on LinkedIn.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.